Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were open unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Luke, I believe, says in bodily form, like a dove, and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then, chapter 4, verse 1 says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. I want to speak to you tonight on our aching need for acceptance. You can be seated. Over the last couple of days, I've been uh, kind of pondering, brooding, maybe even grieving a little bit over the condition of so many fallen, broken people in our wacky, wayward world. Our world is so messed up. And like the people in our Bible, when we come to God and the Lord saves us, uh, we're not exactly like Jesus instantly. We're filled with the Spirit. We're just as if we had never sinned. But all of us have a long way to go. I always get amused when our children receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and they're baptized and maybe the next few days they do something that reminds their parents of the old nature person and they have something to say about their child. I'm like, well, look at you, you know. How long have you been living for God? It didn't perfect you yet, you know. So, But anyway, I've been thinking about our need for personal wholeness. And I recommend that you go back and watch the series, Sundays and Wednesdays, in September of 2017. I preached and taught on personal wholeness. We are complete in Christ, and we're not complete without Him. And when the Lord saved us, He didn't hold a carrot out in front of us that we could never reach. He didn't promise a, a, a relationship that we couldn't have. And He didn't promise a spiritual maturity that was impossible for us. It was attainable, and it is attainable. The choices that people make in life are driven by hidden, sometimes subconscious drivers or motives. Sin is always a choice. It is an action. But we know that we were born in sin, shaped in iniquity. We're born with a sin nature. And given time and opportunity, we will do the wrong thing. Uh, because we were born with a propensity to sin. Romans 7 walks us through this whole process very uh, powerfully how that we desire the law of God after the inward man, but there's another law warring in our members, bringing us into captivity to the law of sin and death. And it is only the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that makes us free from the law of sin and death. So I thank God for the power of the Holy Ghost that makes us free. It's like the law of aerodynamics. While gravity is still pulling on you, there is a more powerful law, a higher law, that gives us victory over that downward pull of sin. Sin doesn't begin with something you do. Sin begins really with what uh, I believe is a sense of autonomy. Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray, We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. But the essence of sin really begins with autonomy. That was Satan's problem. The Bible speaks of Satan's five I wills. It is the I will in us that desire to be in charge of our own lives and no one's going to tell us what to do or rule over us that leads us then to rebellion against God and that ultimately leads to unrighteousness or sinful acts. But it starts with this desire for self-governance, that I will be the master of my own destiny, leading to rebellion, leading to unrighteousness. Now, none of us need a really good reason to sin. Sinning is always a bad 
there's always a bad reason behind sin, but there's so much of it around us and sometimes in us that obviously at the time we must think it's good like Eve who saw that fruit. It was, you know, good, pleasant to the eyes, good for food, desire to make one wise. In the moment, it seemed like a really good idea, but it was really rooted in the lie she believed that God did not have her best interest in heart and that if she ate the fruit, she would be better off than without her. And sin is almost always a shortcut to something that God has ultimately promised. Like Satan saying to Jesus, if you'll worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of the world. Well, he would have that ultimately, but not until after the cross. And we know that is still in the future. I'm interested in examining the origins of good and bad behavior in hopes of trying to build a life and that we can have homes in our church that are whole, W-H-O-L-E, as well as holy, that are like God. When we talk about the God-shaped hole in our hearts, several years ago now on a friend day, that was our theme. We talked about that God-shaped hole in our heart, that place in us, really it's all of us, that can only be filled by the presence of God. And even for people who have had that God-shaped hole filled, when we don't continue our relationship with God, we create a vacuum there that we fill with other things. That's why the cares of life choke out a walk with God. That's why sinful pleasure sometimes displace what used to be a relationship with God. God created us with an innate aching need for the acceptance and approval of God. And he also created us to crave the acceptance and approval of our earthly parents, of our spouse, of our family. I want you to think about this verse, Colossians 3.21. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. I don't really refer to the message, paraphrase often, but it says of Colossians 3.21, Parents, don't come down too hard on your children or you will crush their spirits. You see that child of the Bible said that the glory of children is fathers. And children want so desperately the approval of their parents. And the Bible uses the fathers, sometimes the masculine gender refers to a dad, a male father figure, or sometimes parents. So because children need so much the approval of their parents, when parents provoke their children, when they harshly correct their children, then they cause them to be discouraged. They crush their spirits. So I'm going to go back to Genesis. I want to, uh, to walk you through a couple of passages that maybe will highlight our need for acceptance and, and how we can understand ourselves better, our needs, and how we can also meet the needs of the people God has given us, put them closely in our lives. I, I preached a message on uh, September 17, 2017 called Accepted in Him. And... I talked about Cain, so I'm not going to go at Cain that same way, but it's the same story, so it's hard to not tell the same story. But you may want to go back if you want to know about being accepted by God and re-watch that message, September 17, 2017. Early in the Bible, we learn about the need for acceptance. We understand original sin, Adam and Eve disobeying God, the knowledge of good and evil, it is followed by shame. Sin, right on the heels of sin comes shame. And with shame is a recognition of nakedness. That's where the shame comes from. There's something wrong with me. And then the natural result of that is to hide from God. There's something wrong with me. I'm no longer pleasing to God. I don't have His approval. So let me get out of here. Let me run and hide behind something. Let me hide behind a tree. Let me hide behind a fig leaf. 
Let me hide behind a facade of success. Let me hide behind a big broad smile. Let me hide behind something that maybe you won't really see who I am and you won't know me for what I really am. And there's a lot of people who are still playing hide and seek with God. God in his mercy covered the shame of Adam and Eve, killed animals, made coats of skins. We have all of these ideas of substitution, sacrifice, blood, covering the atonement, the satisfaction of the wrath of God. Then you fast forward just a little bit to the first family, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And these two boys are adults and it's time to worship. And Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground, not a first fruits offering like would later be called for in under the law. But he brings this to God and Abel brings the firstlings of the flock and God respects Abel's offering. He has favor toward it and toward Cain's offering he does not. So when this happens and God accepts Abel's offering, that's what the Bible said, and God had respect unto his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. And you see in Genesis 4 and 5 that when God did not have respect, that Cain was very wroth. He was angry. It seems he's angry at God. And his countenance falls. Now, really, Cain should have been angry at himself. And we don't believe, I do not believe, that God would have expected something from Cain that he was not aware of. There had to be a conversation about what happened in the garden, about blood, about sacrifice, about what pleases God. And then... In Genesis 4 and 6, and I don't have these verses to be displayed, just walking you through the story to a point here in a moment. The Lord said to Cain, why are you wroth? And why is your countenance fallen? And then the Lord says in Genesis 4 and 7, if thou doest well, if you do the right thing, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And he shall be to his desire, and, he, and thou shalt rule over him. It's going to be, sin is going to be like a crouching lion, is the imagery of the original language of Genesis 4 and 7. Now here's this foundation of acceptance and rejection. God rejects his offering, but he gives Cain a chance. If you do the right thing, Cain, I will accept you. And if you don't do the right thing, then I will reject you. Now, this is uh, really not the heart of my message, but it's integral to my message because there is a side of acceptance that has a requirement to it. <clears throat> that if you do well, there is acceptance. And if you don't do well, there is rejection. And that's a component that you cannot ignore in the Bible. But I want you to notice something about Cain that... Uh, I've thought about, but never really in the context of Cain, is that Cain could not take correction. I want you to think about that a minute. That drink of water was because I needed one, not for effect. But it works too, you know. Cain could not take correction. Cain... I'm giving you a second chance. Do the right thing, I will accept your sacrifice. But if you don't do the right thing, Cain, then sin lies at the door. Now, this inability to receive correction becomes a fatal flaw for Cain. And it also is for us. If you are defensive, you're going to be defeated. And I've learned this through the years, through a particular example, that if you have a wounded spirit, you know, if I have an open wound on my hand and you touch that wound, you don't have to hit that wound. All you have to do is barely touch it. And I will recoil in pain because of my wound, not because of what you did to me, but because of something that I'm carrying. And there are people 
that are wounded. There are people in a church our size that are always recovering from wounds, that are dealing with hurts. That's a constant state. But if there's something that happened to you a while ago and it is still an open wound and you still are recoiling and defensive and can't receive correction and instruction, there's something wrong that God needs to do for you to heal you so you can sense the acceptance of God in your life. If you have a wounded spirit, you're likely to receive correction as an attack. So let me ask you this question. Can you receive correction? Proverbs 3.11 says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. Hebrews tells us that as many as the Lord loves, he chastens. And if you do not, if you're not chastened of the Lord, I won't use the King James word, you're an illegitimate child. You don't even belong to him. So if he doesn't ever correct you, you don't belong to him. And the very fact that he corrects you is a demonstration of his love toward you that he wants you to be more like him so he walks into your life with his word and the people that he puts in your life to help you be more like him. Someone described it like this, that you know there's a chisel that God uses to shape you and then there's the hammer and God holds that hammer that drives the chisel. And sometimes we get mad at the chisel. Which might be a pastor or a parent or a spouse or a boss or a police officer or a, a judge or a jury. Civil authority, domestic authority, spiritual authority. These are the chisels that God puts in all of our lives. Just because I'm standing up here and I'm teaching right now doesn't mean that I you know, have the right to not be under authority. You know, if it's good enough to preach, it's good enough to hear for whoever's preaching it, right? So don't you think I'm, you know, excluding myself from this. Proverbs 15.10 says, Correction is grievous unto him that forsaketh the way, and him that hateth reproof shall die. Remember I told you that it was a fatal flaw for Cain to not have God correct him. He had a choice, and instead of doing the right thing, he got mad at God, and I think you may know what happened next. So anyway, another proverb, 2215. And by the way, through the years I've often prescribed proverbs, like to take two proverbs and call me in the morning, you know. A proverb a day will keep the fool in you away. 31 chapters, you can read a chapter every day. There's no long storyline. If you read a chapter every day, you can read it through in a month. And, uh, you know, it might do you good to read it through a few times, like thousand or so, and over and over. So one of the Proverbs, uh, 22.15, said, Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul said that all Scripture is given by Inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in right living, in righteousness. So I just want to ask you, can you be corrected? And if so, who, is, who has the freedom to do that? You don't have to you know, raise your hand or we're not going to do that tonight. But who is it that has the freedom to correct you? When was the last time they did? And how did you react when they did? Never forget that if you're going to be in authority, you need to be under authority. Cain's response to God's attempt to correction was to eliminate the competition. There's only two boys if I kill my brother, then God's got to accept me like I am. There's a lot of people today that think that God's just going to accept them as they are, right? So Cain kills Abel, and God knows. And he asks him, where is your brother? 
And of course, Cain says, Am I my brother's keeper? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries from the earth. And then I want to show you Cain's punishment. And this kind of gets into this idea of acceptance a little bit more. This is a primary passage tonight. The Lord said to him in Genesis 4.11, And now art thou cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. And when thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. And he tells Cain this, A fugitive and vagabond shall you be in the earth. And Cain said to God in Genesis 4.13, My punishment is greater than I can bear. What was Cain's punishment that was so severe that he couldn't stand the idea of the punishment that God had meted out to him? He wasn't stricken with the dreaded disease, a plague. He wasn't afflicted with the deformity. He wasn't possessed by the devil. Cain said, this punishment is more than I can bear. And we know he was cursed from the earth. The ground would not cooperate with him. But the Bible said he was going to be a fugitive and a vagabond. And uh, the New Living Translation, and I checked this by triangulating this verse, reading several translations and commentary. The Bible says that you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. From now on, Cain, you will not belong to a family. You're going to be a loner. You're going to be a wanderer, a drifter. You're not going to have the acceptance of anybody in your life because you rejected me. You killed your brother. Obviously, you don't want to be in a relationship with a brother, so I'm going to banish you from my presence and you're going to wander this earth and you will never feel real love what a severe punishment Cain repeats his punishment in Genesis 4.14 behold you have driven me out this day from the face of the earth and from thy face shall I be hid Cain recognizes that God had given him a chance if you do well shall you be accepted but if you don't do well Cain sin lies at the door And now God tells Cain, you're out of here, Cain. You will not see my face. And Cain says that. You've driven from your face, I will be hid. I will be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass, Cain, add something to this curse. He said, I'm going to be such a terrible, unlovable person that whoever finds me is going to try to kill me. And God, you know says in effect, no Cain, I'm not going to do that to you. And he sets a mark on Cain that whoever finds him will not have the ability to kill him. But it sounds like God had to protect him because when people would see Cain, they would, he would be so despicable, they would dislike him so much that they would want to kill him. But God would not let them. What a punishment to never know what it feels like to be accepted by your heavenly Father. I was thinking about this story, and I just want to refer to it momentarily. That Absalom, you know, that son that rebelled against David and stole the kingdom from him, and Absalom came back, 2 Samuel 14, 24, David said, don't let him see my face. And the Bible said that he dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and he never saw his father's face. He wanted to see David so badly that he burnt down a field trying to get his father's attention. And I know the whole story here, I'm not trying to make the case to make Absalom the hero and David the villain in this story, but I just want to point out this relationship of a father and a son and the estrangement that exists to not have the acceptance of a father is a horrible thing for Cain. So that's his story. Genesis 4:16. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. He never has that acceptance again. Nothing worse 
and being rejected by God and separated from God. And we realize that sin separates us from Him and that separation is a mark of God's rejection. In the end of time, God will separate sinners from Him forever in a burning lake of fire. That will be the ultimate rejection of God to not know Him, not ever have a chance of being reconciled to Him forever. And I was thinking about how this feels and when David committed his double sin of adultery and murder and he repents after Nathan the prophet confronts him. When David prays that prayer of repentance in Psalm 51 verse 11, he says this to the Lord, cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. One of his prayers is, Lord, don't abandon me. Don't take from me, Lord, a relationship that I know that I am accepted by you. The story in Genesis sets up the, the whole of Scripture. So many things about the way God deals with man. The Bible is a story of how rejected sinners become accepted saints. The Bible is the amazing story of how abandoned orphans become adopted children. What an amazing book that those of us, as Paul would write, who were once afar off are now made nigh or brought close by the blood of Christ. The Bible is the story of God himself solving the problem of sin and the separation and rejection that it caused. This book is an amazing book. And as I said, if you want to re-listen to a message about being reconciled to God and being accepted in the beloved. And I preached that message on Sunday, September 17th, 2017. Now I know there are two sides of this equation of Cain. There has to be the willingness of Cain to do the right thing so he can have the acceptance of God. But there also has to be the willingness on the part of God to accept the repentance of Cain if he would have repented or of our repentance and to welcome us back in. Behavior and obedience does matter to God. And obedience allows us to have the approval of God. It starts with the obedience to God's plan of salvation. I really want to apply this whole idea to what happens in human relationships more than just our relationship with God. But we have the perfect model of a father, of a parent in God Almighty and his dealing, dealings with his children, God's love for us. Amen? Such an important thing. God loved us while we were yet sinners. He found a way to make us acceptable in him. We're on the cross of Jesus Christ. He tore down the middle wall of partition. He opened the veil so that we could come into the holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ. God created us with an aching need for His approval. And the Bible is very clear that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that if we, John wrote this to Christians, to believers, if we will confess our sins. Some people have the idea that you don't have to confess your sins, that the blood of Jesus automatically covers sin. The Bible is very clear that if we confess our sins, it's a contingency, if we will confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now I want to take you to the story of the baptism of Jesus Christ. We're talking about this whole idea of our aching need for acceptance. So Matthew 3, 16. Let me just point out that when we are baptized... We're baptized for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was not, not baptized for the remission of sins because he was sinless. 
And when he went to John the Baptist, his cousin, and asked to be baptized, John said, I need you to baptize me. And Jesus said, no, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness or every righteous ordinance. Jesus did this according to his own words to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew 3.16. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. I thought of this, it's really not part of my message, but uh, Luke says, descending in bodily form. The, uh, one of the commentaries I read about this, even lately today, not lately, today, I've studied this passage many times, said that the dove would kind of embrace her, put her wings around her, her baby. So, you know, whatever this is a picture of God by his spirit coming down on the man Christ Jesus. Now, let me do a timeout for a doctrinal point. There is one God. He's the father of us all. He's above all, through all, and in us all. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus is fully God, fully man. When we talk about the sonship, we talk about this human being, Jesus Christ, who could bleed and die on the cross he would be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and John would introduce him as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and every Jew who heard that knew that lambs only take away sins when they die. So, the spirit comes down on him like maybe a holy affirmation. Never really thought about this you know, I'm not going to say this because you quote me a holy hug, you know, but there's this spirit that comes down on him. It, it descends on him. It, it lands on him. But the focus of my message, verse 17, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, and I want you to hear these words very carefully, this is my beloved son. This is my son, and I love him, in whom I am well pleased. And it is significant that when Jesus heard these words, <clears throat> he was 30 years of age, his ministry was just beginning, he had never worked a miracle, he was about to go into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, and that's why I read Matthew 4.1 in my opening text, it's on the screens now, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And I, I want to make this point now, and I may come back to it later. But before he, taste, he, before he faced temptation, he felt the affirmation and the acceptance of his heavenly Father. And I think we do a lot better when we face temptation and testing if we're secure in the love of God in our lives. But if you doubt whether or not he loves you, and when you face temptation, you're going to be vulnerable to the temptation because remember, it's a shortcut. It's always an appeal to appease your flesh. But if you know that you belong to him, that he loves you, that he's pleased with you, then you've got the fortitude to say no when the devil walks into your life. No crap, I get passionate about the Bible, you know, so. There's no crowds following him. He had not laid out any mind-blowing concepts of teaching as of yet. Although he was the word made flesh, it was in him. But he had lived a sinless life. He'd grown up through his childhood years. We get just kind of a small video clip when he's 12. And he's compounding the doctors of the law, the theologians in the temple, a 12-year-old boy. And he goes home and he's subject to his parents and then the silent years all the way till this occasion when John introduces him and the initiation of his ministry by his baptism and then temptation. Jesus would need 
as a man, as a human, he would need these words during 40 days of fasting. And afterward, he hungered. Need these words when uh, the devil came walking into his life. Or question his identity. If you be the son of God, if you are really him, well, see, he knew he was really him. He knew it, he knew it, but he heard it. This is my beloved son. If you're the son of God, I know who I am. Amen? I was reading uh, back a year ago, Brother Brad, when we were laying out Family Matters Month for 2018, I'd accumulated several articles, and one was about the deadly traps of temptation, and, and one phrase in there, I just or one paragraph or so, that deadly traps appeal to basic needs. When Satan tempted Christ in the wilderness, he was certainly aware of Jesus' basic need for food. His first temptation centered on this need as he taunted Christ to turn stones to bread. Jesus detected Satan's deception. He rejected it and was alert to his further temptations, refusing each one, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Satan knows that we need and desire food. Turn these stones to bread. Clothing, shelter. But we also need and desire acceptance, security, companionship. And when Satan baits the hook, he baits the hook with things he knows we need but to get them in a way that God does not provide. You see, Jesus would need these words when as Isaiah prophesied, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And Isaiah said, and we hid as it were our faces from him. We rejected him. But he walked in this world knowing that he was accepted of the one that really mattered more than anyone else. And if you're, if you're living your life trying to earn, trying to gain the acceptance of anyone but God, then you're prone to capitulate to the pressure that will come in your life. But if you know that you're accepted by him. You can stand. So let's just look at these words. I know you heard them. I know you know them. I want you to understand them and know them of God's voice in your life when he filled you with his spirit after having repented and being baptized in Jesus' name. But I want you to get these words in your heart. Because I want you to save them to the people God has put in your life. This is my son. I know it says beloved son. I'm doing this on purpose. This is my son. He belongs to me. He's mine. I claim him. You ever heard a parent say, your child... Is acting like your side of the family, something you know like that. In other words, not my son, not my daughter. This is my son. All of us have probably experienced times when we kind of felt that way. But do you understand how powerful it is? For a person to know that they belong to you. I'm not talking about property. I think you understand that. That you're mine. You mean something to me. You're special to me. There's a relationship that I have with you. You're my son. You're my daughter. Then he said, this is my, my beloved son. I love him. He's my son. 
I love my son. And God Almighty tells his son in the flesh, the man Christ Jesus, I love you. Now, I don't have it in my notes tonight, but these words, most of them are repeated on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son. Hear ye him. This is my beloved son. And then he says, in whom I am well pleased. I'm well pleased with him. I'm proud of him. That's why I said a while ago, he's not yet worked a miracle. I know it's in John, but you've got to get the order of his ministry. I mean, he's just been baptized. He's going to be tempted. And then his ministry is initiated. So before he's even done a lot of really great things, hasn't won any trophies yet, hasn't graduated from college, hasn't done all the things that are really going to make you proud. I know he's 30. You understand my analogy here. This is, this, this is my son. I love him, by the way. And I sure am proud of him. In whom I am well pleased. Are you, are you kind of with me that there's no accidental words in the Bible? I mean, everything is there for a reason. And I understand, you know, every text has a context, a setting. And Scripture has one interpretation and many applications. I understand what this passage is about. But I'm pretty excited to think about how God gave us an example of how to talk to the people that are important in our lives. How to treat them. I grew up in a really loving family. And uh, I really wasn't planning to talk about this tonight, not in my notes, and it's not some big dark thing. But, and I said this maybe years ago, I don't remember. But, but we really didn't throw around, I love you. Somebody from the south moved to Miami and they loved everybody, and my mom said to me one time, they can't love everybody that much. I said, Mom, she's from the South. We love everybody in the South. If you're ever really feeling rejected, go to Waffle House. You'll be called darling, honey, baby, more times in five minutes. If you ever feel rejected, just go to a good Southern restaurant. Right? We love everybody in the South. <laughs> But we didn't say, I love you a lot. And when I was in Bible college, I took a course on personal relationships. I took a class called Courtship, Marriage, and the Home. And in this class, they talked about not so much this passage, but the importance of not just showing love, doing things that are loving, like providing a home and all of those things, but actually saying it. And I remember being in Bible college, making up my mind that I was going to tell my mom and dad on my weekly payphone call. Some of you are old enough to know what a payphone is. Don't look at me like that. On the payphone, that I love them. I love them. They love me. We all knew it, but we didn't say it very much. And I remember how awkward I was. I'm like, this is dumb. Why is this hard? It's hard because we didn't do it. We didn't say that very much. It's, you don't want to cheapen it. I mean, God forbid that we say I love you too many times, right? That would be terrible, wouldn't it? I mean, have you ever been over-encouraged? I mean, maybe you could be flattered, but I don't know anybody who's been encouraged too much. And I remember saying, you know, I love you. And of course they said, I love you. My grandfather, he lived to be 100, you know, my cool, one of the coolest men in the world. I was on the phone with him one time and I decided I was going to tell Daddy Doc I love you. And Daddy Doc, I knew Daddy Doc loved me. He was very proud of me. And I said, Daddy Doc, I love you. And he said, you too. <laughs> I'm like, hang on, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to say, I thought, that's progress, baby, you know. Like, 
I knew he loved me. He knew I loved him. We didn't say it. Do you say it? I mean, Almighty God gave us this example. This is my son. I love him. I am well pleased with him. Now, you're saying, yeah, but I'm not always well pleased. Well, I understand that, but some of you keep raising the bar, moving the goalpost. Your spouse and your children are trying to win your acceptance. And they need to know how you feel about them. So I'm going to ask you, did you grow up hearing those words? This is my son. This is my beloved son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. Did your father tell you that when you were a little girl? Did your, did your father ever tell you that when you were a little boy? Maybe your father was not in your life. Did your mom ever tell you that when you were growing up? You belong to me, you're mine. I love you, I'm proud of you. Did, did, did your parents tell you that they loved you? You know, it's possible that if you never heard those words or seldom heard those words, that it's not easy for you to say them. But it's also very possible that if you never heard what Jesus heard, now you've gone through your life struggling with acceptance. Maybe you heard those words from your parents and you got in a relationship with someone who just ripped your heart out kind of undid all the affirmation and acceptance that was graciously given you when you were a child. I told you we live in a really messed up world, a wacky world. What I'm talking about right now sounds pretty fundamental. My wife and I, you know, we're youth pastor and we were sitting talking to a young girl one night and there was a song back then and she said, she was really making a lot of bad mistakes. A lot of bad mistakes. She made a lot more bad mistakes. She had a home life that was the antithesis of this. It was a horrible home life. And she said, you know, I'm just looking for love in all the wrong places. And that was really true. Because she didn't find it at home. If you're married, and I recognize my, our church, our single parents, our single people, our elders, I recognize who we are. I know that. And we're trying to build strength into our church, right? So you deal with these fundamental relationships that make us a church, a family of God. Um, if you're married, has your spouse heard those words from you? I know it's really quiet right now, and I'm not trying to kill you. Right? I'm not trying to like... I think maybe I should preach on the oneness right now. You know, that would be easier for you. Because I know this is more like open heart surgery. I'm not, I'm not, trying, to, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help me trying to help you. Has your spouse heard your mind? I love you. You did a great job on that. If it's hard for you to say that, maybe you never heard that. Growing up, it's hard for you to say that. Hard for you to give affirmation and that you didn't receive. You may or may not feel it, but you just kind of like me on the payphone. You just need some practice saying it. 
And then you're going to feel really awkward because somebody knows I taught on this tonight. Man, I wish she wouldn't have come tonight. Then I could have pretended like I just thought of this myself. <laughs> but it's okay to say, I learned something. I think. I think that's okay. I hope it's okay. In fact, I really believe that's why you're here. Just having a little fun with you right now to help ease the pain a little bit. A little little anesthesia, you know, to help the surgery go better. <clears throat> Have you said these things to your children and then backed them up with their actions? The people in our lives need to know that we claim them. You're mine. I love you. I'm well pleased with you. I read this thing for teachers one time that you need to give some good remarks with the red marks. That reverse psychology is not always that smart. You know, parents that tell their kids, you'll never amount to a hill of beans. Oh, that's reverse psychology. No, that's dumb. <laughs> Did the voice boom from heaven? You loser. You'll never work a miracle. the voice affirmed who he was and expressed love and pleasure acceptance amen this is my beloved son or daughter I know I've already said it you may assume that love is felt and understood but you need to express it you need to hear it a lot and maybe you need to apologize and be more transparent and speak sincerely these kinds of things to the people. And so I believe that, that we, we almost speak prophetically into the lives of people. We speak to who they are. You know, if I tell the people around me the negative traits of my children, I know our children are grown, to what end is that? Oh, they're shy. Oh, they're this, they're that. Well, you have negative traits too. Do you want somebody like at work bashing you for your negative traits? I don't think so. And I know they're, they're, I, I asked you earlier in my message because it's a component of this. Can you receive correction? You need to be able to receive correction. If you do well, you'll be accepted by the Lord. He doesn't just accept you because you're breathing. He accepts you on his terms of salvation, right? So I, we're past that though now. We're talking about the giving of this kind of love and acceptance to people who are imperfect as we are that we're not going to expect them to be the paragon of perfection before we tell them that we love them, they belong to us, that we're proud of them. I read a story about a kid who was called Mean Mike growing up. Oh, that's Mean Mike. He lived up to his name. And most people do. So why don't we say these kinds of encouraging things to people? Sometimes, you, oh, I don't want them to, I don't want to inflate their ego. You're not going to overdose on encouragement and true expression of love. If you're only bragging about performance and appearance and things that maybe they didn't have anything to do, well, performance they could have something to do with, but you really should compliment character, effort, you know, because not every little kid is pretty, just yours. Competition's fierce for that in our world. If you're not pretty, you're not that important. Right? The Bible said of Jesus, and then I think this is probably in reference more to his crucifixion, there is no beauty in him that we should desire him. 
This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I believe that we live for acceptance. We live to hear the five talent man, the two talent man, they both double them and they go give an account and what do they hear at the end of the workday? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You did good. Down here in Georgia, we could say, done good, boy, I was good. I did good. We're all, every one of us are living for one day to stand before God. I'm living to hear him look at me one day and say, Daryl, you did good, boy. Enter into the joys of the Lord. You're a good and faithful servant. Your mind... I loved you, I love you, I'm well pleased with you. Amen. I don't really have time to get into this too much, but I'll just say a couple words and I will finish all my notes here. But I heard a story in a one-liner. I love one-liners because they're principles that, you know, one-liners encapsulate principles. That if we are not accepted by those who should accept us. We will go with whoever will accept us. Now that's not always true, but it's often true. That's why gangs are so prevalent among boys who do not have a father in their life. That's why girls compromise their morals trying to win the love of a boy who doesn't want true love. But she is craving acceptance. If we're not accepted by those who should accept us, We're prone to go with whoever will accept us. So what about the people in your life? Well, you they, pastor, they don't measure up. Well, you need to look at God's measuring stick and find out where you fall in that. You're going to play that game. You're in a lot of trouble. And if we want his acceptance and we want to have healthy relationships, we need to be generous with accepting the important people in our lives. We're going to stand and come if you have time to come and pray and the worship team will come and they'll play a while and we may sing a little bit. But would you just stand and I want you to just... Come to the altar if you have time. If you have a super early morning, you're not able. I understand that always. You're welcome to just make your way down to this altar. And uh, just as Jesus Christ was strong enough to endure the temptation, the temptations that the devil brought to him. When we do well, we are accepted. And when we know that our Heavenly Father loves us, claims us, is well pleased with us. We can walk out into a world that is filled with temptation and pressure and every opportunity to do the wrong thing. And we can look in the face of our peers, our co-workers, the person who's trying to get you to be involved in an illicit relationship, and we can say, no, thank you. No, thank you. I know whose I am. And I'm surrounded by a world of people who claim me. It's called the family of God. And they love me. You know what? They're pretty proud of me too. They know where I was, where I came from, and where I am now. And I know I've got a long way to go, but I'm headed in the right direction. You should have seen me before Jesus got a hold of my life. The mess I was in. And just to know that He loves me 
makes it worth everything. Let's just thank the Lord right now. I love you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I love you, Lord. Amen. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord.